Join me in turning to John chapter 7. We're going to look at the entire chapter. In 1996, Sprite, the, the uh, soft drink company, they had a problem. This is a really bad problem. No one was buying their product. And so executives came together and they were trying to figure out how to revamp their image so that people could and would buy their product. And so they got together and they found this, this advertisement uh, company, uh, this marketing firm, and they paid them a lot of money to help them think through how they could market Sprite better so that more people would buy it. And it took just over a week of deliberating and discussing, and then they came out with this new slogan. You know it. They had this catchy new phrase, which was, Sprite, obey your thirst. All right? I think they still use it, right? And it worked, all right? Their sales that next year went up, increased 9%. Right? This is, this is unheard of. And so, but it was wonderful, and, and the man who invented it, we, we were like, this guy's a genius. And yet, here's the thing about that slogan. He stole it. He actually stole it from an, a forgotten political speech given in 1971. Later on, he, he confessed that he actually ripped off Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan, who was the then governor of California, he was giving a speech to the Boy Scouts of America, and it was one of those California hot summer, just scorching days, and he was speaking to them. And so at one point as he's speaking, he's getting towards the end of that speech, and he is just thirsty, he's sweating, and so he he turns and he grabs some water, he takes a sip of that water, and he is instantly refreshed. And then he turns back to the microphone, and this is what he told his audience. This is how he concluded his speech. He says, quote, Now, I certainly have spoken on a number of different topics today. However, if you remember one thing and one thing alone, it should be this. Speeches are nothing. Thirst is everything. Always remember, obey your thirst. Man, he totally ripped him off. Well, in one sense, I... And you're going to see this in a moment. I couldn't agree more. If you remember one thing and one thing alone from this sermon, if I could convince you of one thing and one thing alone this morning, it would be this. Thirst is everything. Obey your thirst. Today, we're going to continue to look at chapter 7. And I'm going to kind of whet your appetite with the big idea. That went over some of you, but whatever. And the big idea is simply this. The prerequisite to life with God is thirst. So obey it. Obey it. Well, as we open up, and we're going to kind of read through this in sections as we go along, but as we open up chapter 7, we actually need to sort of orient ourselves to the calendar year because it's very important to understanding and unlocking what John is doing here and actually what Jesus is doing here as he begins to teach in the synagogue, um, you, you look there in verse 2. It says, now, now the, Jews, the, Jew, uh, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Or, or some of your translations might say the feast of tabernacles. Now, this is a feast, and it lasted seven days. A- and what they did is they, they would make 
uh, think family camp. They, they would make sort of makeshift uh, tents and, and live in those makeshift tents in all these different places. And they would do so to commemorate and to celebrate and to remember their traveling in the wilderness back in Exodus. They would remember when God provided for them in the wilderness before they had gotten to the promised land. Particularly one image or one story, which is when God provided for them. They were thirsty and God provided water from a rock. And so for seven days they would celebrate. This was like the Mardi Gras of their calendar year. This is the most joyful celebration and feast in the Jewish calendar. For seven days they would celebrate. And then on the last day, the high priest would walk to a nearby pool and he would gather a bunch of water in a jar. And then there would be like a processional as they would chant and sing hymns, particularly the songs of ascent. And then they would get back to the temple. And the high priest would then take that water over his head and pour it into the altar of sacrifice to commemorate when God provided from water from a rock. You remember that story in Exodus 17? God's people are thirsty. They think they're like dying of thirst. And so they go to Moses and they're like, we need water. And God instructs Moses to go to a rock and take the staff and strike the rock and out bursts living water, right? Water that gives them life. And so in many ways, when the Jewish people When they celebrated the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, they're remembering all these stories, the stories of God's provision for God's people, giving them life-giving water. And so it's it's a celebration reminding of God's faithfulness in the past and a reminder in the present that God continues to give life giving nourishment to God's people. But not everyone obeys their thirst. That's what we're going to learn this morning. Sometimes, maybe it's because of pride, stubbornness. Maybe it's because our expectations of God are just not met. But sometimes we neglect the good gifts that God puts before us. And that is what the first half of chapter 7 is all about. It's about a people who are thirsty, but they don't drink. Look there in verse 1. Read along with me. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the, Jew, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. We'll we'll stop there. So once again, Jesus is up in Galilee, and his brothers, well, they want him to go down to Judea, don't? Don't, don't they? But but there's a sort of a problem, and verse 1 hints at it, and that is that there's a a whisper in the wind that people are trying to kill Jesus, and yet his brothers, the primary primary concern isn't for Jesus' safety. They want something else, don't they? 
They want Jesus to go down to Judea, particularly to Jerusalem, and to, you know, continue the marvelous things he's doing, right? Continue his miraculous uh, ministry. Because in one sense, what they want is, if you want to be famous, you got to go to Hollywood. He's famous in the countryside, up in Galilee, and he has a growing following, but just think about the growing following. Think about how big Jesus' ministry would be if Jesus went to the Hollywood of the time, right? If Jesus went down to Jerusalem. Do you remember a, a, a few years ago? Actually, maybe it was like a decade ago. It felt like yesterday. Uh, LeBron James, he was, uh, he was playing basketball for Cleveland, which is a smaller NBA market. And eventually, one day, he was sitting down with a reporter, and he said, and he announced to the world, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Sorry, Nathan. Now, what, what was he saying there? I mean, that's what the brothers are saying. Jesus, you need to take your talents to South Beach, Jerusalem. Like, you're great here, and you've got this great following, but you need to go to Jerusalem. Because there, it's gonna, your ministry is going to explode. Your followers are going to explode. Just do the various things that you're doing in Galilee. Do it in Jerusalem. And then you're going to be even more famous. They wanted Jesus to be famous because just think about it. If Jesus is famous by association, they're famous too. And then in verse 5, we have this sort of really sad, tragic, parenthetical statement that John writes. For not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, they, they believed something about Jesus. They believed he could do miraculous things. They've seen it. They believed that, that, that he, he was this, this wonder maker. They believed he was a sideshow of some sort. But they didn't believe something particular about Jesus. They really didn't believe Jesus when he claimed to be the Messiah, when he claimed to be the king, when he claimed to be the long-awaited Messiah. Well, that they didn't believe. Do, do you ever name drop? Ah. Uh, I caught myself doing this the other day. I was driving, and there was a political sign of someone for running for political office, and I turned to someone who was with me in the car, and I said, my sister used to date him, which is true. But, but it had nothing to do with the conversation we were having. And I was thinking afterwards, I was like, why did I do that? And the reason is, the reason why we name drop, I think, often is because we say, oh, they're famous, and if I'm associated with them, then I'm by association famous too. And that seems to be what Jesus' brothers are doing. They're saying, oh, if Jesus increases his fame, well, by association, they'll increase their fame too. And, and maybe, because often fame comes fortune. So maybe they think, oh, the family name? If you make a great name for yourself down in Jerusalem, it's going to be great for all of us. But verse 6, Jesus responds, And he says that it's not his time. He says it's not the hour. And so, verse 8, Jesus tells his brothers, go down. You go down to the feast. I'm not going. I'm staying in Galilee. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he comes to, like, the the hour or the time? You know, we read this multiple times. Jesus will talk about, my hour has not yet come, right? You saw that in uh, John 2 when Jesus is talking with his mother uh, about, uh, at a wedding, and he says, my, my hour has not yet come. 
But when Jesus says this, it's sort of shorthand for the time in which Jesus would die, be raised, and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's sort of shorthand for that, that climactic point in history in which Jesus would die for sinners, be risen to life three days later, and then, and then uh, 40 days later ascend back to the Father. It's that time, that, that, that point of glory in which Jesus says, that's, that's the hour. And he says, that time is not yet here. You see, Jesus was so attuned to the Father. He was so attuned to the will. He was so attuned to the preordained plan from eternity past that he knew it wasn't time for him to leave Galilee and go down to Jerusalem. He still had ministry to do. He still had wonders to do. He, he, he still had things to teach. It was not the time for him to go down from Galilee to Jerusalem. That, that's how knit the Son and the Father's will is. That's how attuned Jesus was to the Father's will. He, he knew it. It was not yet time for him to go down. That's the sensitivity of Jesus. He just couldn't go down to Jerusalem yet. It wasn't the time. Now, I think unlike us, I mean, it's one thing to be like, oh yeah, Jesus really can discern God's will. Precisely. Particularly. For us, it's harder, isn't it? I mean, pr- probably, as, as a pastor, that's one of the number one questions I get. It, it has to do with finding God's will. Right? Sh- should I buy this house, that house? Should I take this job, that job? Right? Should I have one kid, two kids, three kids, no kids? Whatever, right? You just name it, and we're always searching and thinking through and trying to discern and find God's will for our life. And it's hard, and there's, there's many things. I mean, we, we do this as a community. We do this together. We, 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 we do this studying the Scripture. But it can be hard to discern God's will. And, and I think often we, 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 we discern God's will like the brothers do, Right? I love how Jesus says, like, it's not my time, but any time is your time, right? Basically, what Jesus is saying is, oh, isn't it convenient? Like, you know, those people who are like, oh, oh, the thing that I really want, oh, I know for sure that God's will is that. That seems quite convenient often. And I think by way of application, one thing we learn here is that as we think through God's will in our lives, particularly, we all have blind spots. And often we, we can get so just focused on what we really, really want that we can be like these brothers who just assume, oh yeah, Jesus, well, you're doing great things here. It obviously is God's will for you to do it in Jerusalem. And so we can jump to conclusions about the divine will of God. And yet I think a better posture is one in which we get on our knees with our hands open and we over and over again recite the Lord's Prayer. My kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To just pray that posture. God, I, I, I don't know, but first and foremost, I want to do your will. And maybe, maybe the road less traveled, maybe the harder road is the road. And maybe it's the easier road. I'm not sure. But a posture that has your hands open, your heart open, that's a great place to begin. It doesn't seem like the place that the brothers of Jesus started. But here Jesus, 
He's so attuned. He's so attuned to the divine will that he can not only pray that, he lives in light of God's will. Well, Jesus' brothers, they, they fail to understand who Jesus is, but they're not alone. Go to verse 10. Verse 10, but, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Why, while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So Jesus eventually goes down to the feast. But, but, but he does so secretly, right? He, he's sort of incognito for, for much of chapter 7. He, he's not recognized. And when you're not recognized and you can just walk around, you hear what people are talking about, particularly about you, right? And the gossip, gossip of the day, it really is all about Jesus. And so some are saying like, hey, where, where's Jesus? Jesus should be down here. After all, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of the mandatory feasts, so Jesus needs to be here. Why isn't he here? Others are saying, hey, Jesus, he's, he's a pretty good guy. He seems like he's healing people. That seems like it's good for human flourishing. And then others are like, no, he's a pariah on society. He's bad. And then you sort of get the emotional atmosphere of the moment in verse, 19, or verse 13, don't you? Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Right? They're muttering, which is like whispering. But, but for fear of saying the wrong thing, for, for, for fear of maybe being seen as an ally with Jesus, people just privately talked about Jesus. Very few were talking publicly about Jesus. I mean, privately they could be like, oh yeah, Jesus seems like a good fella. But publicly, there's too much baggage that came with Jesus. Fear does this, doesn't it? Right? Fear doesn't just have this tendency to grip the heart. Fear has this tendency to have like a vice grip on our mouths. I sometimes joke that uh, most of our problems in adulthood all stem from our problems in middle school, right? And in one sense, one of the things, the sort of existential crises of middle school is, we want to be in the in crowd, whatever that in crowd is for you. You wanted to be liked by certain people, be a part of certain people. Well, C.S. Lewis actually wrote an essay all about this sort of natural desire in the human heart to be in the seat of privilege, or to, to be in the in crowd, or to be accepted by nobility, or this, to be accepted by whoever you deem as worthy. Lewis wrote this, quote, I, I believe that in all men's lives, at a certain period of time, and in many men's lives at all periods of time, from infancy to extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the, what he called the local ring, and the terror of being left outside. You guys ever watched the smash hit Hamilton? Some of you have, right? Aaron Burr, what, what, what is his existential problem? What is his greatest fear? To not be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, right? You know that song, some of you. That's his fear. He wants to be in the room where these decisions are being made and he's excluded and he's so angry that he's excluded from the decision-making in Amer- uh, early American history. 
We all want to be included. We all fear exclusion. And so when society is against Christ, there's this sort of added pressure to compromise, to, 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 to whisper devotion privately, not publicly. You see, I, I don't, in one sense, most cultures are fine with your private devotion to Christ. Where it gets complicated is when you take it public. Privately, great. Worship Jesus, no problem at all. Whisper about Jesus. Hang out with Jesus in your home. But the moment you want to take it public, the moment it affects your lives, the moment it affects your behavior, that's where it gets more complicated. And that's what we have here in many ways. You see, not all people are going to drink from this water that Jesus is about to offer. I mean, sure, the, the crowd, it seems like they were thirsty in some way, right? They're like, Jesus seems like he's a good guy. So, so there was some sort of thirst for Jesus to be the Messiah. But, but they weren't thirsty enough. Recently, I've gotten into this kick. I'm, I'm into sparkling water. I think I'm late to the party here, but, but I'm getting really into sparkling water. Um, I have like a pecking order of what I think the best brands are, but I'm all about this, all right? But, but, but I remember about two years ago, I was really thirsty, and uh, I was like in a car, and my wife only had sparkling water, and I was desperate, and so I grabbed it, and I drank it, and I remember thinking, I'm thirsty, I ain't that, that thirsty, and I gave it back to her. That's what the crowd seemed to be like. They, they, they're, they're thirsty, but with all of the baggage, with the social pressure, with the rejection, with not being approved of by society, with the, the threats that might come with following Jesus, they're like, well, we're thirsty, but, but that cost too much. Right? They're a little bit like Jesus' uh, parable in Mark 4. Remember the second seed, the seed that was scattered on rocky ground that, that had no root, and when the trouble came, when persecution came, when threats came, the seed fell away quickly, silenced in fear. Well, let's keep going. Look there at verse 14. They're not the only people who reject and are confused about Jesus. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not of mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, it is not this man whom they speak to kill, who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? 
but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him him you do not know. I know him for I came from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour has had not come yet. So in the sort of middle of this feast, this seven-day week, Jesus, still in disguise, he goes to the temple and begins to teach. In one sense, you're like, not the smartest thing to do, but, but here's Jesus. He goes, and then verse 15 says, people are just marveling at Jesus as he's teaching. They're like, who is this guy who has such a, a grip on God's word, who can just teach with such authority? Who, who is this guy? This guy didn't even go to seminary. And then Jesus basically says, well, I didn't come up with this teaching. God did. God who sent me gave me this teaching, this this authority. And he said, if you obey it, if you obeyed my word, you would know that it was true. And then verse 17 and 18, Jesus sort of really gets into it, particularly verse 19. right? He, He says that Moses gave the law which they're not obeying. And how aren't they obeying? It says, well, you're trying to kill me. Now remember, Jesus is still in disguise. And that's why they say, you're crazy, you're a demon. Because they're like, no one's trying to kill you. You're teaching. Because murder is a breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus is saying, you're breaking that law by your attempts to kill me. And they are like, no, no. You're crazy. And at that point, it seems like Jesus finally reveals who he is. Verse 21. Jesus answers them. I did one work and you all marveled at it. The the work he's referencing is the healing on the Sabbath. That's still the controversy of the day. I did one work, healed the man on the Sabbath, and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do you, do you see what Jesus is saying? So in God's providence, sometimes when people are born, uh, eight days later equals the Sabbath. You can't control these sorts of things, right? Well, God gave Moses a, a command that on the eighth day you were to circumcise A boy. So so that's one of the commands in the Old Testament. There's also a command not to work on the Sabbath. So what were the religious leaders to do? If there was a boy born and eight days later was the Sabbath, they circumcised it. And Jesus is saying, by way of pointing out their hypocrisy, he's saying, you are attacking me for working on the Sabbath. Yet you say, well, we need to obey this commandment at the expense of the other. And yet, when I say, oh, I'm going to heal a man, which is an even greater sign of God's healing, circumcision was a sign. It was a sign of, of, of bringing, someone, bringing someone into God's covenant, be, being in the wholeness of God's covenant in the Old Testament. And he's saying, that sign is a sign of, of what God's doing in people's lives. And I am healing a man, which is a greater sign. Why can't I heal on the Sabbath? Well, you can just imagine that everyone's at an uproar at this point. Verse 25, 
people finally realize it, and they're like, the crowd at least is like looking around to the religious leaders, and they're like, is no one going to do something, right? I mean, Jesus is Israel's most wanted. How are you just allowing him to teach up here? Could someone arrest him, do, do, do something? They're, they're just like wondering out loud why this is going on. Well, security doesn't do anything, do they? They, they? Some might have hoped that they'd have chased Jesus away, but he just kind of keeps on teaching. And then the confusion kind of wraps up, and it kind of ramps up, and Jesus is said to be disqualified for being the Messiah. They're like, hey, we know where this guy's from. He's from Galilee. We're pretty sure the Messiah is supposed to be from the city of David, Bethlehem. So this guy can't be it. So what threat is he? Just let him keep teaching, whatever. He can't be the Messiah. And then you get to um, down even more. You just keep going uh, in, in verse uh, 26 and following. Even in verse 32 through 36. And you realize that everyone is just confused. No one knows who this Jesus is. And they're like, Jesus then begins to talk about how he's going to leave soon. Talking about his, his ascension. And they're like, is Jesus going on vacation? Right? Is he, is he going to preach the gospel to the Greek Jews? Like, what, 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 what's he talking about? Everyone seems to be confused in different ways. You can just feel the tension of the moment. They're asking lots of questions. Like, how can Jesus teach? What gives him the authority to teach in the way he is? Why is he even allowed to be in the temple when he doesn't have the education? Why, why can he assert that he's the Messiah when he doesn't have the pedigree? He was born in the wrong place, which he wasn't, but they thought so. Right? They have all of these litany of reasons for why they can write Jesus off. The point of this that John wants to see is that they're looking for any excuse, every excuse, to just wash their hands of Jesus and say, see, he's not the guy. We can arrest him. We can kill him. It's fine. He's not the one. They write him off and look for any excuse to do so. You ever met people like that? Maybe at one point you were that person. Just looking for any excuse, any logical reason in your mind to write off Jesus. And in many ways, I think what was going on is that each of the ways in which people and the crowd, the religious leaders, the, the, the Jews, all, all the different reasons in which people were writing Jesus off, much of it had to do with Jesus not meeting their expectations for what a Messiah should be. You know, when, when you have conversations about in, in premarital counseling or marriage counseling or just with friends, a lot of conflict boils down to unmet expectations, doesn't it? You expect one thing from a friend, they don't do it, and so your justice meter goes off and you begin to get frustrated, get angry because you expected more from them. I mean, we can all tell funny stories of that. One month into marriage, I assumed that my wife would be just like my mother. <laughs> you know how, many, how, how, how bad this is going to be already. My mom, on Saturday from about 6 a.m. to about 2, would clean the entire house. She just did that every Saturday. I just assumed 
that my wife would do that too. And I remember looking, like, the first Saturday, being like, it's, it's nine. I don't, why are we sleeping in? Like, it's cleaning day. Like, we got, we got to. No, I didn't get too frustrated because it became clear that I was the wrong person without wrong expectation. But, but these expectations that we put on people often can be some of the kind of the, the aquifer of our conflicts with one another. And yet, just think about the expectations you put on God. You're going through a hard season, and you're like, well, God would never. Like, God, I, I expected more from you. And so we put all these expectations on God. Unbiblical expectations. Expectations for maybe more wealth, more happiness, more privilege, more prestige, a better life, whatever that means. And then we get frustrated, and we can reject God in, in tow, which is what these crowds do. They their expectations for who Jesus should be is not met, and they say, no, we're not, we're not following him. We're going to write Jesus off. He's not meeting our expectations. And so at this point, the narrative kind of turns, and this is the point where they just really start pursuing Jesus to kill him. Well, it's in this drama, this tension, that Jesus works his kind of prophetic, kind of ministerial his sermonic genius, right? Look at verse 37, right? This text, chapter 7, seems kind of sad and dark. It's not. This text is glorious and good. As amazing as the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles is, that's the kind of emotion of chapter 7. This is a glorious chapter. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried. Another word is he shouted. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom whom those who believe in him were to receive for as yet, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here, in the sort of midst of controversy, in the midst of confusion, people writing off Jesus because he, he's not meeting their expectations, Jesus speaks. And, and I just want to kind of set the, the sort of emotion or the, the scene of the text. Right? It's the last day of the feast, it says, right? So it's the climactic day of this feast. And there, you've got the... the the high priest and all of the other priests, and they walk towards a pool. And the high priest gets a jar, and he bends down, and he scoops up water. And then they take a processional with all the people, crowding and singing and chanting, crying out, singing. They're probably crying out and singing as as they often did Isaiah 12 in sort of four-part harmony. I mean, just imagine. um, Isaiah 12 says this, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust I will not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. And then verse 3, this is why they would always sing this on the last day. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They're singing this, right? The, the, the sort of eschatological hopes are just increasing in their hearts. God, will you show up in the same way you showed up in Exodus 17, in the same way that, you, that water burst out of that rock and gave life to your people 
Lord, will this be the year? And so they're walking, they're cheering, they're excited. And then the high priest, he grabs the jar, he puts it over his head, and there's a hush. Silence. And the high priest begins to dump that water in the basin of the altar of sacrifice. And at that moment, Jesus shouts. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Jesus doesn't do anything unintentionally. Right? The feast, the last day, oh, it's all intentional. He is making a huge biblical theological argument here. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You see, that the beginning of Christianity, or the beginning of a person's walk with Christ, always starts with and is predicated on the sort of prerequisite to life with God is thirst. That's what Jesus says there, right? If anyone is thirsty. Now, well, Jesus is talking not just physically, he's talking metaphorically. He's talking, uh, he's using this evocative image. And, and the idea of thirst is that you, well, the thirsty are those that are, that, that know that there's something wrong with them. That they're guilty. That they're robustly needy that they're spiritually famished. Or to use a, just a three-letter word, an old word, uh, an important word, that they have sin. They're sinners. And that nothing inside of them can fix them. And Jesus says, if that's your reality, if you're thirsty, if you're feeling like the people in the wilderness thinking, I don't know where to get this water. I'm so thirsty, I'll do just about anything. If you're that desperate, well, good. Because then second, Jesus says, come and I have provided the remedy for your problem. You see, Jesus is the fountain of life. He is the supplier of forgiveness. He is the mechanism of healing. He is the hope of spiritual revival. And it's interesting because, do you remember all those questions that the people had, all, all the debate that's going on? I mean, if, if it were I, just putting myself in Jesus' shoes for a second, which is probably not a good thing to do, but for the sake of argument, I think I would have said, okay, you've got six arguments for me. I'm going to debate you and tell you why number one, two, three, four, five, and six is all wrong. Jesus doesn't do this. He, he doesn't answer all of their questions. He just says, are you thirsty? Come. So often Jesus doesn't answer all of our questions initially. He just says, are you thirsty? And if you're thirsty... Come. He doesn't just show him his birth certificate and say, look, it says Bethlehem. He just says, I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacle. In the Exodus, you drank, but you were never satisfied. Right? Actually, if you know Exodus 17, it happens again in Numbers. In Numbers, they grumble again, they're thirsty again, and then what happens? Moses strikes a rock, only he was told not to strike a rock. He was told to speak to the rock. And water flowed out again. You see, God's people didn't learn. They were perpetually thirsty. And yet Jesus is saying, the only place you can find your thirst quenched is in me. Do you want to know why? I mean, Moses strikes the rock, which he says, speak to the rock. Moses grabs his, rock, his staff and strikes it. Have you ever wondered... 
That is the reason why Moses can't go to the promised land and he dies in the wilderness. Like, why? I mean, the first time he says, strike the rock, why is Moses excluded from the promised land for just that small oversight? Instead of speaking to the rock the second time, he strikes it. Because the rock in Exodus 17, the the rock was a type. It was a shadow. It was pointing to Jesus Christ himself. And that Christ is only going to be smitten once. And Moses messed with the type. He messed with what that image of Moses striking the rock and outcoming life-giving water that was ultimately supposed to be fulfilled in Jesus. Peter tells us that. Paul tells us that. The rock is Christ. So Jesus is standing up there and saying, hey, you're having a good time at the Feast of Tabernacles. You, 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 you're, you're longing for God to, to sustain us and provide for us and, and give life-giving water. I am the fulfillment. It's me. Don't look at Ponce de Leon's the fountain of youth. I am the fountain of youth. I am life-giving water. It all is in Jesus. In the book of Jeremiah, the, the prophet talks about how all of us are thirsty. And it's interesting because as Jesus talks about the, the, these, these streams of, of, of water... He, he, he says that not only if you are thirsty and not only you drink, but it's interesting because thirdly, he says that out from your heart will burst living water. Do you, do you, do you see that? Verse 38. And he's talking about the spirit. So he's saying that if you come and you're thirsty and if you obey Jesus and you drink of him, which he's saying drinking is a metaphor for believing in him, right? It's spelled out there in verse 37. If, if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is who he says he is, and has provided for you, and if you drink in faith Jesus Christ, it means that the Holy Spirit will come in, reside inside of you. Right? That, 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 that life, God himself, will take up residence in you. But it's not just that. It's not just, great, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you now have life. It says, out of that will burst life. So, so the image is not a, of a dam. The image is of a stream that it just doesn't end in your salvation, but then out of you will burst life. Life in the sense that you'll change. Life in the sense that you'll become more like Jesus. Life in the sense that you'll want to pursue people. Life in the sense of the fruit of the Spirit. You'll be forever changed. And Jesus is saying, we all thirst. Really, the question is, what are you turning to? And that's what the the prophet Jeremiah points out. The prophet writes this, that, that my people have committed two sins. It's really interesting. He says, they've committed two sins or two evils. They have forsaken me. And then the, the, the description of, of who, the, who God is, is they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug cisterns or they've dug pits for themselves. Broken cisterns that can't hold water. So Jeremiah is really clear that all of us are thirsting. We're all turning to something to satisfy us. And one of the evils of the days isn't that you're not turning to water, metaphorically, it's that you're turning to the wrong water, that you're seeking to be satisfied in wealth or comfort or prosperity or a better job, more success, relationships, comfort. You just put it all 
out there. We all have those various ways in which we are pursuing cisterns of water that we think are going to replenish us, sustain us, and yet they always leave us thirsty. They always fall short. But here it says the Spirit will come and reside in you and it will always satisfy you. It won't let you down because it's not an it, it's a he. It's a person, God himself residing in you and bursting out new life. Reagan was right. Sprite has a great slogan. Thirst is everything. Obey it. But our text ends on a sort of anticlimax because not everyone does. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it after, and it's, there's still debate. They're still debating who Jesus is, where he comes from. Even Nicodemus, who we met earlier, comes and says, hey, give Jesus a shot. Maybe, maybe let him talk a little bit. And they're like, nope, we're not going to even let Jesus talk. I mean, it just ends on a bitter note, a sort of anticlimax. But even in the midst of that, look back at verse 31. In the midst of confusion... It says, yet many of the people believed in him. Thirst, it's everything. But we're called to obey it. I mentioned C.S. Lewis uh, a second ago, but he wrote a children's series, and one of the books is called The Silver Chair. And in it, there's this girl, and she is really thirsty. Her name is Jill. And she sees a lion and she's freaked out, and she runs as fast as she can in the opposite direction of this line, and she eventually comes to this forest, and she is so thirsty that she thinks she's dying, and she looks over, and she sees a stream. Oh, it's good. But as soon as she looks and she sees the stream, she sees that same lion drinking from that stream. And the lion says to her, Are you not thirsty? And Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. The lion says, then drink. Jill says, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her near frantic. Jill says, will you promise not to to do anything to me if I come? The lion says, I make no promise. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Jill said, do you eat girls? The lion said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Jill said, I dare not come then and drink. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. And the lion says, there is no other stream. Well, it was the worst thing that Jill had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. I'm not saying that there's not a surrender to come and drink from the the stream of Christ. There is a yielding to Christ 
when you come and drink from him. But what Jill experienced is the same thing. My guess is it's much of our testimony, which is there is a satisfaction, a joy in drinking the life-giving water that Jesus offers that makes all other waters seem not as great. So, my question, are you thirsty? Well, if so, then the only thing is to obey your thirst. In faith, turn your affection towards Christ. And out, as Jesus says, out of you will burst forth streams of living water. Let's pray. God, we, um, we, we know that that all of us in various ways and in different seasons are thirsty. Maybe one of the, the biggest ways we're thirsty is we're, we're thirsty for your return. Some of us might not be as thirsty for your return. But Lord, I think all of us are thirsty for wholeness. This is a broken world, Lord, and we long to be healed. We, we long to be in a world where there is no death and tears. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray, Lord, for, for us as a church, Lord, we, we pray that for the first time or the millionth time that we would continue to come and drink from you in faith and to experience newness of life and that we would together as a church experience that newness of life as we encourage each other, love one another, and see you work in our lives in extraordinary ways. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.